You're listening to Byzantine Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture in collaboration with the Melkite Eparchy of Newton. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and director of the Institute and host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Welcome, everyone, to our Byzantine lectionary gospel reflection for the Sunday of the genealogy or the ancestors of Christ. And uh, we really have a theme walking us through the text today of of, uh, well, of the ancestors of Christ and of faith, all of who walked by faith as we learn in the epistle. But I think I'm going to throw a second theme in there for fun. It's the, oh no, not again uh, gospel. We have the genealogy of Christ, the begats, and most people respond to this, you know, when they first begin hearing, I think, this uh, the Sunday of the begats, uh, kind of in that way. Oh no, not again. But, you know, Father Sebastian, I think for yourself, for me, this is one of our favorite Gospels because the entire story of salvation history is put into just a few verses. Um, and I wish other people would appreciate it like that. I, I, think, I look at it kind of like a bridge, that every single name is a bridge over another generation, another generation like that, all the way to Jesus Christ. So if we can look at it in that way, let's dig into it and pull some jewels out of here and see if we can connect those bridges with some themes that are kind of holding the whole thing together, okay? And we get the text, obviously, from Matthew chapter 1. We're going to read chapter 1, verse 1 through 25. And for sake of time, Father, we're going to skip our um, epistle today. Maybe we'll be able to weave it in its theme of faith. But uh, for those that are participating and want to do a little Bible study beforehand, the text is Hebrews 11, verse 9 through 10 and verse 32 through 40, but I would recommend reading the whole thing, 9 through 40, there in the epistle to the Hebrews, um, which then goes through a number of the, of, of the old, um, images and people of the Old Testament. So let's take a look at this, Father. M- Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 through 25. Before we jump and start, if you could just give us a little context. What's unique about the Gospel of Matthew? versus the other Gospels. Why is it that Matthew starts here with a genealogy? And, you know, obviously I'm asking a question about who's he writing to? Because that's really, we've said that before, but it bears repeating. If you know who the author is, and you know who his audience is, uh, you know what his intention of writing is. I mean, you basically you got the whole ball of wax there, and you got the context, then with that context, you're going to be able to properly read the text and, and get the treasures out of it that are hidden there. So if you could give us a little bit of that context of the Gospel of Matthew, especially in regards to this genealogy. Sure. Yeah, that, that is extremely important with the four Gospels. They're all very similar in that they tell the story of Jesus, but they all do thing, things differently. And so why, do there, why are there differences? It's because while they're all preaching the same message, they're preaching to their different authors, preaching to slightly different audiences in different regions and things like that. So Matthew's gospel, uh, as traditionally held for, uh, from the earliest references among the fathers, Papias of Heriopolis, and then quoted in Eusebius and Origen and others, is that Matthew's gospel is the earliest of the four gospels. 
Mm-hmm. And when we look at the gospel very carefully, we find that it is uh, certainly seems to be that is the case because it is assuming a massive knowledge of early uh, Jewish Christian cultural issues. It's uh, it's a, a Jewish Palestinian gospel. It's written for that early church there in Jerusalem, Judea. Uh, it's the way Matthew would have been telling the gospel, preaching the gospel of Jesus in that region. And then eventually it's written down sometime in the 60s. And so it's, it's very helpful to know that that's one of Matthew's primary focus is explaining Jesus to Jews and for Jewish Christians to really understand uh, what he's doing, why he's doing it, and how it's related to the Old Testament. All right. With that background, let's let's uh, dive into the text here, and then we're going to unpack a number of themes that that are given to us in the text. And I I ask our participants, don't just glaze over. <laughs> keep your attention, and then we're gonna. If you keep your attention, uh, we'll be able to go back easily to the text, dive into pieces of it, and really draw out what Matthew is trying to tell us. The book of the origin of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, Jacob begot Judah and his brethren. Judah begot Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Abinadab, and Abinadab begot Nashon. Nashon begot Salma, Salma begot Boaz of Rahab. Boaz begot Obed of Ruth, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. And David the king begot Solomon of the former wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam, and Rehoboam begot Abijah. Abijah begot Asa, and Asa begot Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat begot Joram, and Joram begot Azariah. And Azariah begot Jotham. Jotham begot Ahaz. Ahaz begot Ezekiah. And Ezekiah begot Manasseh. Manasseh begot Amon, and Amon begot Josiah. And Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brethren at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel, and Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel begot Abiud. Abiud begot Eliakim. Eliakim begot Azor. And Azor begot Zadok. Zadok begot Akim. And Akim begot Eliud. And Eliud begot Eleazar. Eleazar begot Mathan. Mathan begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary. And of her was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Father, why don't we stop there for just a second? Because the text is quite long, and it really can be broken up into a couple of pieces uh, although the whole thing has to hang together, and that's our job today is make it hang together. But nevertheless, I think it's helpful to people as we're looking at this to kind of see the pieces and be able to understand and then isolate them before we connect them together. Um, one of those ways is to just simply be familiar with salvation history. So there's this, there's kind of almost some time periods here, I think, from from Abraham to, we could say, to the exile into Egypt. Um and then, or the return from Egypt, we might say with Boaz and that, that whole storyline with Ruth. Um, and then from David to the Babylonian exile uh, with Shealtiel and, and Zerubbabel. And then we get this time period from the Babylonian exile to Christ. So there's one kind of a, a, a triple division that I think is helpful for people 
I have, by the way, a series of talks on the Institute website called Swords and Serpents. It's six hours on this text right here. So we go in and we study all of salvation history. If anyone's interested, if you got six hours, and, which nobody has, by the way, in the days leading up to Christmas, but nevertheless, it might be helpful for you. Um, uh, but Father, just let's go back to the beginning here and take a look at this. Matthew begins with Abraham. Um, and I, for me, I, it's, it's always been a big question. First of all, why not start with Adam? And why not start with David? I mean, those seem to be two guys where I would, where I would start the genealogy if I were writing it. But he starts with Abraham, and he does so for a reason. And if you could kind of maybe help us understand that. Sure. The, um, the Gospel of Luke's genealogy, he, he definitely uh, goes back to Adam there. And Luke's doing something similar to, uh, to, to Matthew here. But Matthew's got this, he's got this Jewish audience. And so he has to make sure he explains who Jesus is, not just in light of Adam, but a very important figure in their history. And that is Abraham, the father in their faith. And so he starts out by saying that Jesus, the Christ, is the son of David, son of Abraham. Well, all sons of David are sons of Abraham. So as you said, there's got to be a reason why he mentions that. Why does he bring that up? And what he's trying to do for his Jewish Christian audience is remind them that the, the faith that has been professed by the apostles that is now spreading throughout Judea and into the Gentile world is for the Gentiles also. And so he reminds them that, that David is a son of Abraham. So it's not just that the Messiah is a son of David, but that David is a descendant of Abraham. All of the Israel's descendants of Abraham and their job, all of them, is to participate in some way in that call of Abraham. If we go back to the story of Abraham in, uh, in Genesis, we hear that Abraham, after we have a long list of all these nations that have come from Noah after the flood, 70 nations, and all of a sudden Abraham is called out from them. But as we, call, we hear him being called from the nations, God then says to him, I will bless you. I will make you a great nation. I will make your name great. And he says, so that, the purpose of all this, through you, all the nations shall be blessed. So the purpose of Abraham's call from the nations was for the sake of the nations from which he was called. And so Matthew is reminding his audience here, and this was a, a, an issue in the early church of, do we let these Gentiles in? And if we do, do they, what do we have to require of them before we're going to let them in the door? You know, they have to, and so Matthew's showing them that God's call of Abraham, his call of Abraham's descendants, your role in salvation history is for the sake of everyone else, for the sake of all the nations. So they all can be called into the, to the people of God, not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. You know, what you're saying in light of, <clears throat> excuse me, in light of a lot of what we've studied about St. Paul, you can also understand here in light of the Gospel of Matthew that there's this real tension in the early Christian community of, of their identity. Um, and, and, and now this question of, are we really going to let, you know, are we going to let the Syrians in? Are we going to let the Jordanians in? You know, <laughs> that's a joke. But, you know, are we going to let these other cultures, and these other peoples into our religion? And certainly it's something that the Jews were dealing with at the time leading up to Christ of a very much an isolationism uh, uh, mentality versus what, like exactly what you were saying, they were as a people of God for the sake of 
the nations. They were for the kind of the shining of that light of salvation, but in fact, in many ways, they had failed in their call to do that very thing, to, 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 to share the faith with others and bring others into the fullness of that faith. You know, um, after this whole list of, of names here, um, then Matthew focuses our attention on the, the generations, 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. Of course, in biblical terms and in, in, in literary terms, when we see this repetition, I think it's something we need to pay attention to. The author's doing something, uh, in a, using a literary tool to draw our attention to this thing by repeating it three times. But this 14 generations, why 14 generations? Why not 15? Why not 16? In fact, I have heard even if you count the generations, it doesn't even work out exactly. But Matthew seems to be focused on this 14 generations. Why is that? So, yeah, if you do your math, you look at it, you'll notice, um, first of all, you have to count some of the generations, the first and the last, twice, which was a Jewish way of counting, like their octave, for example, was, uh, you know, eight days. We, we would think of eight distinct days, but for an octave, as we have in the church, which is a Jewish way of counting, is, you know, say Sunday all the way to Sunday. We count all, all those. So, uh, so they do that. He does that with the genealogies. He counts um, a name at the end and then a name at the beginning of the next section. He does that. But uh, so he, he's, he's got his 14, 14, 14. He also, some have suggested, mentioned that there's a few names missing. If you go back to the Old Testament, there's a, whole, there's a list of about three, uh, three generations missing in one spot. If we go back and look, again, it's a very Jewish way of doing this. These are the descendants of the northern kingdom from Jezebel that had infected the line of David. So he just takes out those that are cursed to the third generation, <laughs> removes those. So he ends up with this 14, 14, 14. Uh, as you said, he's, he's really emphasizing this. Sometimes we uh, people thought, well, seven is like God's lucky number. So seven times two, <laughs> so maybe, well, if he wanted to do sevens, seven would be, he could easily do that. 14 is divisible by seven. So he's focused on that 14. And what's going on here is that in the ancient world, they counted with one symbol system and it's the same symbol system that they wrote with. So we in, in modern times, have two different forms of the Phoenician alphabet we use. We use a, a form of the Phoenician alphabet that came through the Greeks, through the Latins, into Europe and into English. Uh, and that's the form that we write our letters in, we write words. But when we count, we inherited the mathematic, the Greek ancient mathematics from, Greek, from the Greeks, the ancient Greeks, that was translated all that was translated by our people in the Middle East, the Christians there for uh, the Muslims who were interested at point in, in study. And this was kind of the, the high point of, of Islam for in the Middle Ages for a brief moment when they wanted to actually learn about ancient world. And, and so that uh, interest in ancient Greek literature and Greek mathematics then comes into the Islamic world through Spain and then eventually into Europe. So that in Europe, we uh, European Christians then developed mathematics counting with the Arabic alphabet, which is from the Phoenicians. So there's two different systems. So it's strange for us. In the ancient world, they had just one system. And that, that system then led itself to seeing words with numerical values. 
So if you looked at, you saw a couple of characters on a piece of paper on a, on a etched into a stone, you'd have to see context to see whether or not that's a, a word or a number. And if you saw a big paragraph or a big bunch of stuff, you'd have to look at it and very carefully. Is this a, 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 a math problem or is this a paragraph? Mm -hmm. So it was, it was easy to go back and forth like that with number values and words. And so the name David, Dawid, is, has the numerical value of 14. So he's emphasizing 14, 14, 14. And the reason why is he wants to emphasize the importance of this generation that this, and it goes back to this issue with Abraham again, that this is 14 generations, that is David, from the time of the Babylonian exile to the coming of the Christ. 14 generations of David to the Babylonian exile, and 14 generations from Abraham all the way to David. Now, three in the Bible is complete or perfect. So this is David, David, David. He's trying to tell us something. This is a unique generation in all of history at this moment in which the fulfillment to Abraham and the fulfillment to David could take place. This is a unique generation. And there is only one child, though, within that generation who has a unique origin among that generation. And that's what he tells him next. You know, that leads, that leads into the next question I wanted to ask you just before we jump back into this text. Um, and that is that, that you know, the, the first line of, this, of, the, of the next paragraph of this gospel, now the origin of Christ was like this. And that reflects back to the beginning, that first verse, the book of the origin of Jesus Christ. And I'm just wondering, as we jump into this next section of the, of the text, maybe you could remind us, make sure we're all on the same page, that first of all, that Christ is not Jesus' last name. Um, and certainly what he's talking about, the importance of David and the fulfillment here of David, ties back into this question of this, this title, the Christ. Um, but because of translational issues and, and so forth, it becomes very convoluted in the English to understand exactly what Matthew is trying to point out here. And I think it's important for us to be all on the same page. Yeah, the, uh, so the, the word Christ is a Greek word in English, Christos. Uh, which is equivalent to the Hebrew word Mashiach, Messiah, which means the anointed one. It goes back to the Old Testament when the people of Israel asked for a human king. They already had a divine king. And so they asked for a human king as well. And so, uh, and they wanted one like the nation. So God gave them Saul, which was one, the kind of guy they wanted. They wanted a, a warrior king, not necessarily the most pious one. That was what they wanted. So he reflected the people at the time and God gave them what they wanted. We have to be careful what we ask for. And so Samuel anointed him with oil, and that was an outward visible sign of the Spirit descending upon Saul. This is recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 10. As we, we know, that, you know, after three strikes, he's out. He didn't work out so well. So finally, God says, all right, that's enough of that. Now I'm going to show you the kind of king that reflects my own heart. And so he gives them David. And again, we have the same story in 1 Samuel chapter 16. We have Samuel going and anointing David with oil, pouring oil on his head, and the Spirit descends upon David. Now David is able to walk in the ways of the Lord. They're both given the Spirit of God, Saul and David. But Saul resisted the Spirit of the Lord. As we know, we can resist the Spirit that's been given to us in chrismation. So, but David walks with the Spirit most of the time and follows the ways of the Lord and then therefore reflects the, uh, the Lord's kingship over his people's dominion he rules over his people he fights their battles for them david's going to do this for them now and so that word christ is a, is a reference to the anointed king it's synonymous in the jewish christian world 
in the Jewish world in the Old Testament with the anointed king of Israel or of, of Jerusalem. And so that's, that's what's going on here. David uh, had, that, had, had a promise that his descendants were the only ones to rule over the, on, in the throne of Jerusalem. And so this is why we hear about Jesus as the descendant of David. David was promised that the sons, his own sons would be called sons of God. That was God would take care of them, adopt them as his own. But here what we find as we read the story is that this is the eternal son of God who's going to be adopted into the line of David. You know, of course, in light of what you were talking about earlier about this being a gospel to the Palestinians, the early Palestinian Christians, um, I think it's important that um, we remind ourselves, and I, I, I can't stress this enough for our audience how important it is to realize the problem that those very people were facing in the years leading up to the, the incarnation, uh, just on a human level, that they had come back from Babylon 500 years before, and apparently the Davidic line was gone. I mean, apparently there was no king on the throne. So they very much looked forward to the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the king, the return and, and, the, and the fulfillment of exactly what you're saying, 2 Samuel chapter 7, that, uh, that, that the Lord would be faithful and that the, the son of, of David would remain on the throne forever. And, uh, and yet they faced this serious problem and they're under the, the, the foreign oppression of the Romans. Um, and so there's this real expectation building in our hearts that God would eventually, would eventually in some way, um, give them what they needed most was, which was a, a someone, one of their own to rule that the Messiah would return, that the King would return. So we get this, this text here, right at the beginning of the origin of this one they've been waiting for. But as you said, He's not exactly like maybe they would have expected that he was a, a human king, but is, this truly is the divine king who has now taken to himself our human nature. Let's jump right back into the text now um, about, about halfway through, just after the 14 generations. Now, the origin of Christ was like this. When Mary, his mother, was betrothed to Joseph, she was found before they came together to be with child by the Holy Spirit. But Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wishing to expose her to reproach, was thinking of putting her away privately. But while he was considering these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Do not be afraid, Joseph, son of David, to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is begotten in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins." Now all this came to pass, that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is interpreted God with us. So Joseph, arising from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and took Mary as his wife. And he did not know her till she brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Okay, Father, again, let's, let's go through this text and, and take pieces of it that might be helpful for our, for our participants in, in the study. Uh, I think the first thing, we've already talked about this origin of the Christ was like this. Um, when Mary, his mother, was betrothed to Joseph, we have this issue that jumps out immediately 
regarding Mary and her relationship with Joseph. Um, and this concept of betrothal, which I think is maybe a difficult for some of our, especially our, our, our American audience to understand. Um, and, uh, um, and then the problem of Mary's pregnancy, and of course, Joseph seeming like he's going to divorce her. Um, maybe you could give us a little insight into this, uh, into this text of what it means to, um, to be betrothed um and what exactly joseph was going to do what was his relationship with mary i was thinking just in our time of preparation here we have this beautiful hymn in the church that we sing uh that mary is uh the unwedded bride the unwedded bride and i think if we just unpack that a little bit for we're going to have a little better understanding so maybe you could kind of highlight that under give us a little insight into that sure the uh the earliest traditions about joseph and mary uh and they, in the first couple centuries, are all the same, all the story, early Christian stories, that Mary was a temple virgin, and uh, Joseph was an older man in the community, a widow, and, a widower, and he uh, had some children with his former wife. His wife had died, and Joseph was chosen among the other widowers in the community to take this particular temple virgin into his house. So the, the temple virgins would be released from their duty in the temple right around age 12 or 13 when they began to menstruate. They couldn't be around the temple anymore because the blood. So they would be released from their duty there at the temple. They still were considered temple virgin. They're still under a vow of virginity to God for the rest of their life. But they were, um, uh, but now when they had to be in the care of someone outside of the temple precinct. So they would give them over to an older man in the community who would, who was trusted and considered righteous in the community and would look out for them. So Mary was taken into his house. He uh, was betrothed to Joseph. This is before uh, she actually moved into the home. She is found to be with child. So there's this problem now because Mary's not supposed to be pregnant. She's a temple virgin. Joseph was chosen specifically because they knew he was trustworthy. And so now there's this kind of crisis. And we can read about that in the Proto-Evangelion of St. James, the early Gospel of James, where we hear about the problem of, the, seems like neither of them have been uh, abiding by the basic rules here. Mm -hmm. And so uh, once it's discerned at the temple that, no, this was actually a miraculous event, they let Joseph and Mary go home. And uh, Joseph takes Mary into his home and cares for Mary in her pregnancy. In the middle of all this, he's contemplating maybe divorcing her. Now, this sounds very strange. All of a sudden, in this nice Christmas text, we have suddenly a divorce story. What? Well, it's because Joseph's a righteous man. He keeps the law perfectly. That's what it means. So you, in the Old Covenant, a man could have multiple wives, but a, wife, a woman couldn't have multiple husbands. And so there's for Joseph, who's trying to wrap his brain around this from the standpoint of the Jewish law, is if Mary has been impregnated by the power of the Holy Spirit, then in some way God is her husband. And so he can't really take her into his home as a, as a bride, even though it would be a temple virgin arrangement. Because if he, if he continues with this betrothal, then he's in a certain way breaking the law, and at least he's pondering the problem. You, a woman can't be married to two husbands. And so, and so as a result, he, he's contemplating the possibility of maybe excising himself from the situation. And as he's doing this, of course, he has this dream where the angel explains to him, no, 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 
you got to stick here in the situation, Joseph. You're not just a son of Jacob, as the genealogy tells us. You're a son of David. And a son of David means you're the connection that we need for this child to be born and be adopted into the Davidic line, and then therefore to be a descendant of not only David, but Abraham, and to fulfill the promises of the seed of Abraham and the promises of the son of David. That will happen as a result of you adopting him, you naming him Jesus. Yeah, it's interesting that, that, that Matthew, it always jumps out at me. Do not be afraid, Joseph, son of David. So he's, he's stressing this thing. And I think, you know, your comments earlier about, uh, about the 14 generations and about seeing all of this in light of um, uh, the context which Matthew is placing it for the, the early Palestinian Christians is so important that we're letting Matthew speak to us as he intended to speak. And allowing these texts, things like Son of David, when and he could have just said, hey, Joseph, you know. But no, he makes a, a, a specific point about the way the angel spoke, right? The angel reminds him of his identity and his role in salvation history. Um, and, uh, um, and then, of course, we have this text which has caused, no, you know, um, no end of controversy between apostolic Christians and uh, those who would call themselves Protestants, um, that he did not know her, that he did not know Mary till she brought forth her firstborn son. Of course, we call, we call her ever virgin um, in the apostolic tradition, and yet there are many who would look at this text and say that, uh, uh, guys, you got to read your Bibles because you're not Bible Christians. Okay? <laughs> you, you're, you, look at this. Yes, we can accept that, this is what the Protestants would say, Mary was virgin uh, you know, up to the giving of birth to Christ, but then something changes. He did not know her until she brought forth her firstborn son, indicating that Mary is not ever virgin. Um, and I, I think for our audience, Father, especially with your linguistic background, could it help us understand this a little bit better? It's proper understanding uh, for those early Palestinian Christians. How did Matthew understand it? Sure. Yeah, the, the, the problem that you're mentioning there is, as you said, it's only really a problem we find, for the most part, at least based on this particular verse, among modern Christians in America. Uh, it it's, comes from a misunderstanding of an English translation which is a real tragedy. The word till or until here sounds as if they're going to have, they had no relations up until the birth of Jesus until he was born. And then that kind of implies that must've been something going on afterwards. And so then uh, that's how until is used in modern English. So it's understandable. The confusion I, I was running until I saw the car. I don't have to say anything. Everyone knows I stopped running. I was eating until I was full. Everyone knows I stopped eating. That there's an assumption of an action that changes at that point based upon that use of the word until. But older English, and that's actually why in our older English translations, you actually get this word here, till or until. It's really only a promise developed in modern English. Is that in older English, we use the word until in a broader usage, not only to mean an action which changes at a certain point in time, but sometimes to imply an action which goes to a certain point in time and continues on. So, for example... You may hear someone say in older English speeches, uh, the, um, the early Americans ate turkey and cranberry at the first Thanksgiving, and we have had this tradition in America until today. 
Well, it may sound like an older English construction, but we hear people giving little speeches like that sometimes. That's elevated English. It's an older English style. And we all understand it doesn't mean that after today we're going to stop eating turkey. So the, that's, that is really the range of use of the word that's in Greek here, hells. The word in Greek, hells, has both usages. You can use it either way. And so it's only by context, just like in English just now, that you're able to discern which meaning we're talking about. And so, and this is why, looking at the Greek text, that uh, Christian scholars, Christians in general, reading the Greek in the early church, and even up to today, Christian scholars all agree that Matthew is not trying to imply that they're going to have relations after the birth of Jesus. That's not his point here. Yurik, Swingley, Calvin, Luther, the reformers, the founders of the Reformation, all agreed Mary and Joseph had no children after the birth of Jesus. This is only a modern English problem that people come to. The, so what's going on here? If you look at the context, and that's going to tell us which usage we got here, the point of Matthew chapter 1, if you read from the beginning to the very end, the theme here is not Mary and, Jesus, Mary and Joseph had children after the birth of Jesus. That's not the point of the text. The point of the text has nothing to do with what Mary and Joseph were going to do after the birth of Jesus. That's not the point of the text. The point of the text is to show us that Jesus is clearly not the natural descendant of Joseph, but rather adopted. He's, he, he had, as an adopted son, he fulfills the line of Abraham and David, but he is a, he's, this is a miraculous virginal birth, and that he is the natural son of God from all eternity. That's the whole point of chapter one. Everyone can agree on that. And so therefore, if that's what he's trying to show us, if that's the context, then it's pretty clear how he's using the word until to show us that Mary and Joseph had no, chill, no, no relations from the moment she conceived that baby all the way to the moment when she gave birth to him. And then that means it implies that is a continuous action beyond that point. But then we have to ask the question, why in the world does he make this point? What's the, why does he have to say that then? Because you have to go back to the genetics and biology of the first century. The Jews in the first century believed that if a man impregnated a woman and she then had relations with another man, either through rape or adultery, that the offspring born, the eventual birth of a child would be either the offspring of the second man or a mixture of the two. There was a debate among them about which one. And so Matthew has to show us from the beginning and at the end that that's impossible for Jesus to be a natural son of Joseph. And he, that's why he says up in, verse, up in verse 18, he says, Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, and before they came together, he used that word before there. Why does he say before? He doesn't have to say that. Well, he says that because of this issue, just like the until at the end. If he didn't say before they came together, before they were living in the same house, a, a Jew might hear this story and say, well, this Jesus, if this happened after they came together, then Jesus could be, even if he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus would be half Joseph, possibly, if they'd had relations before him, not just a not just from God. And so he has to explain that as before they came to bear, before there was any chance of any possible, you know, relations, they weren't even living in the same house. Okay. But then he has to cut off the problem at the end too. Well, what about after she conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, 
was there anything, were they, was there anything going on? They were living in the same house. Was there anything going on? He says, no, no, nothing happened all the way till the, when Jesus was born. Because otherwise someone would say, well, maybe the conception was by the power of the Holy Spirit. But if they were living in the same house, Matthew doesn't clarify that nothing was happening. Then someone could suggest that Jesus was the originated from the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is, a, um, is half Joseph, half God, or he's just a descendant of Joseph. Hmm. You know, as you're talking, I, I um, maybe reading this text for the first time for me um, now. Uh, I can to see the whole of this this thing in an apologetic manner, but to be very careful that it's not a modern American Protestant apologetic, that we allow Matthew to make his point to his audience um, in defense of who Jesus is. Um, and then it's, it's within that that we can start to see what his real driving point is in all of this. And our focus here upon Jesus as the Messiah, as the one who they're expecting to come. And then he's, he's, he's heading off any debates about whether that could be true or not true in kind of in an apologetic manner, but certainly focused upon those early Palestinian Christians and not, you know, upon the questions of, of Mary's virginity and so forth like that, as we get in and debated, get into the debate today, you know, father is just, as we, as we conclude here, um, there's a lot of information um, that's very helpful, but I think one last point would be also helpful. And that is the name Jesus, which seems to kind of come out of kind of come out of nowhere, um, that that uh, and the connection. Call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And then and then that last line, and he and he called his name Jesus. It's really a focus on what this child's name is going to be. There's an importance there. And almost a connection between the, the saving us from our sins and the name itself. But I think because of our lack of understanding of Hebrew and Greek, um, maybe it just becomes, you know, it's like, I don't know, Hezekiah or Sebastian or just some other random namer, you know, Frank or Mike or whatever it is that, uh, that, that somehow he's given this name, but, but we, we lack the background understanding. Maybe you could give us that just in conclusion here to give us this insight into Matthew and how the early Palestinians would have, would have heard this name. Yes. The, so that's the problem in English again, names in English, because English is a conglomeration of so many different languages. Our names are coming from different languages. And so names don't have meaning in English except for names like charity or joy or something. So sure. the, uh, but in, in most languages where the name is actually part of that language, the name actually means something. Uh, and so many of our audience, those who speak Arabic, who have a name from an Arabic language that actually means something in Arabic. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the, um, so when we hear Jesus in an English translation for us, because names don't mean anything to us, then Jesus doesn't mean anything. It's just a, oh, it's that, that's the guy's name. So yeah, so Jesus, if we go back to the history of this name, it's really important. Uh, uh, Justin Martyr's dialogue with Trifle the Jew points this out. He says, look, he says, the reason why the Messiah is named Jesus is because of the scriptures of Israel. And he explains, if you go back to the Old Testament, that the one who took over after Moses, the one who was the successor to Moses, his name was Joshua. 
And Jesus and Joshua is the same name in Hebrew and Aramaic and in Greek. Just in English, we get these variants. So, so the first time we see this name in salvation history is a guy named Joshua, son of Nun in the Old Testament, the successor to Moses. And he was given that name by Moses because the people had given him the name Hoshea, Savior. When they came out of Egypt, Moses, we know the story, went up on the mountain and he outstretched his hands to pray. And, and this man, Joshua, as he's eventually called, is down there mowing down the Amalekites who are opposing them as they're coming out of Egypt. And so the next time we see Joshua in an important role is that, that when, he, when Moses sends in the spies, he renames this man who the people were calling Savior, Hoshea. He, he calls him Yehoshua, that is Yahweh is Savior. So Yahweh, the God of Israel, is saving you through this man. It's not just this man, but God saving you through this man. And so then when Moses actually dies and doesn't go in the promised land, Joshua brings the people finally into, the, into salvation. He finally brings them to the place where the whole exodus was, was uh, intended to bring them across the Jordan and into the promised land, which, of course, is where we then see Jesus beginning his ministry at that Jordan. You know, I, I think in conclusion, we can bring, tie all of this, all of this together um, between the importance of Jesus as the, as the Messiah, as the anointed one, the king who's going to lead his people. But this image of Joshua, and what you're saying, I just want to make sure our, our audience is clear that the name Jesus and the name Joshua are the identical same name. So we think about Moses and Joshua in the Old Testament, we can think about you know, Joshua, the son of Nun, Jesus, the son of none. It's Jesus that leads the people of God uh, across the, 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 uh, the Jordan River and into the promised land. It's Jesus, the son of none, who defends the people and, 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 and destroys the enemies of God, the Amalekites in the desert. So this important, the image of Joshua in the Old Testament, uh, I encourage our participants to go back and, and just at least a cursory reading of his life to understand then the power of this name as the early Christians would have understand it. If this is, in a sense, Joshua returned, if this is the fulfillment of Joshua, and now he's not only going to save his people from the Amalekites, but he's going to save, he's going to save us from our sins. He's not only going to wash us through the, the, uh, the Jordan River, but through the waters of baptism. And here I think it's so important we, we see this coming together of, as I've mentioned before, the Feast of the Nativity is not just a looking back 2,000 years ago to this historical event of what happened, but the fulfillment of that historical event and the revelation of what has taken place that we learn on Theophany, or the baptism of the Lord, that, that God has truly made himself present. This is no longer just simply the descendant of David, but it is truly the Son of God who has come now to lead us uh, out of the desert of this life, um, and, and, to wash us through the waters of baptism, and to bring us into the promised land, to the presence of God himself. Um, and with all of that background, then, we can look forward in the coming days uh, to the Feast of the Nativity, in which the revelation of Joshua takes place in our life. And the question, again, as it was for the people in the Old Testament, will we follow him? Are we willing to be led by him? Will we accept him as our king? Uh, are we willing to go to that place that we cannot see, but that he has been to? 
um, it's it's I think an important point. Remember, uh, Joshua is one of the one of the the, the um, spies that goes out into the into the promised land early and sees what's there. Comes back and tells the people and says, "Come, we can do this. We can do this." And Jesus has been in there. He's been to the promised land, and and we need in faith, as we learn in the epistles, to follow him, to be willing to go. And then our baptism. The, the, the revelation, the, the truth of our baptism, the reality of our baptism, and the reality of the nativity of Christ come together. That in just a few days now, we will celebrate the fact that God has been born in our midst. Not as one outside of us, but one within us. For those who have opened our hearts in faith to him, the incarnation takes place today not back 2,000 years ago, but today here, that we have made our hearts Bethlehem, that we have made our hearts ready for him to be born and then to lead us into the promised land. Let's finish, Father, with this, um, the Treparian, the Treparian of the preparation uh, that we will sing this Sunday. Bethlehem, make ready, for Eden has been opened for all. Ephrata, be alert. For the tree of life has blossomed forth from the virgin in the cave. Her womb has become a spiritual paradise, wherein the divine fruit was planted. And if we eat of it, we shall live and not die like Adam. Christ is coming forth to bring back to life the likeness that has been lost in the beginning. In the coming days, uh, we will be praying together that we open our hearts to make ready for the coming of the Lord, that he might lead us back to paradise, which we lost in the beginning. To Christ our God be glory, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Byzantine Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer, including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities, and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.